0: Shalom, Jim, How are you? Shalom, Rabbi. And I would say good morning, but I don't think our audience would understand that when I say that to you, it's afternoon in 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 the good land. But though we're separated oh, we're by above miles, time and
1: space completely,
0: yeah, I'm going to wax poetic here and say that though we're separated by by time and space, uh, God has brought us together through the miracle of the internet. And That's s- so beautiful. S- so, so, Yes, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes. There's a lot of miracles, a lot of miracles going around. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, I'm so glad that we're not like a news program. I know occasionally, like, we talk about things that are of, of vital importance to our listeners in every part of the world, in the land of Israel and what goes on everywhere, but the news is, is like seems to be designed to totally... Um, denigrate the the um, divine image and it's very very difficult and almost unbearable let's shut it off you know so Mm -hmm. we're not a new show i do have occasionally some very um i don't know you'd call them quirky or like unusual things that i I like to report about that i don't think everyone sees uh you know we talk about our our place in the universe and we talk about um, developments that seem to be pointing towards hashem's hand in in um space and time to bring everybody back to a, a higher level of consciousness i have to tell you about a news item that to me is very important much more important than what's going on in, in the re- in the in the world <laughs> that people are talking about um, this caught my eye F- it's from sciencealert.com and it is the the following incredible research that's going on about humpback whales. Wow. So it's for, first of all, everybody knows that humpback whales sing a song. They do. But the but now according to this incredible research, they have found that humpback whales that are separated by nine thousand miles are singing the same song.
0: Well, you know what that sounds like, don't you?
1: I do. Well, well, I mean, they play all different songs. Some of it (laughs) it has been been described as as complex as as jazz. You know what, before I even continue with this news item, which actually affects us very deeply and is connected to some major themes that we need to talk about today, such as the concept of song as -hmm. it relates to the redemption and such as the concept of the singing of the whole world, which is basically what Teshuvah, what Repentance Return is all about, which is this season. But as my as my introduction, I wanted to talk about the humpback whales and what it I think it means. But listen, I have this. First of all, anybody can go to YouTube and look up the songs of humpback whales, but they're all different. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure that what they were singing in the 70s, for example, is nothing like they're singing now. You know, you and I have been through that as far as our playlist is concerned. Yeah. But anyway, so here, see if see if you can uh, if you can pick this up. This is um, one song of humpback whales.
0: All right, are you hearing something right now because I'm not? Okay.
1: I hope everybody was able to hear that, playing it off my phone, but you can go to YouTube and look up humpback whales, but here's the thing. So according to this article From sciencelearn.com. Humpback whales throughout the entire South Pacific Ocean are connected to each other via shared song. According to new research, from the east coast of Australia to French Polynesia to breeding grounds off of Ecuador, a total distance of more than 14,000 kilometers, researchers have heard humpbacks singing the same songs. So this is actually... um, very unusual because it seems like it's not understood how they are able to communicate when they change their playlist. So the article continues and says, male humpback whales are known to belt out mating songs, and, and I quote, as complex as jazz during breeding season, and each population has a slightly different chorus of vocalizations that they string together in unique ways. These multiple repeating phrases are known as themes and each whale song has several. Yet every once in a while, a breeding population will undergo a song revolution whereby all the themes the male sings are replaced by new ones. Anyway, the article goes on to stress that it's not clear how and why they do this. But in any event, um, over the course of three years from 2016 to 2018, this team of scientists was able to map a gradual song revolution that basically seems to be circling the whole world, migrating from the Indian Ocean to off the coast of Australia. And the article ends with this quotation. The study of humpback whale song culture not only draws parallels to songbird song characteristics, but sheds light on the underlying mechanisms of social learning and cultural evolution in animals, ranging from fish to other, Sea to sea in species through to humans. This is a study published in Royal Society Open Science. Well, I, am I, are you in a daze over this?
0: I'm. I... I'm wondering. I'm. I'm wondering if there's going to be a Grammy uh, nominee coming up here for the whales. And and, and you... I hope. I hope that one whale doesn't slap another
1: whale at the ceremony and the whole thing. <laughs> If they're really If they're really that similar to
0: people, I don't know. I, I knew you would you would get a zinger in there, but thank you. I was thinking more of of are they going to limit the the, the speech, the acceptance speech of the whale? Uh, but you know this you know I don't know any other way to describe this except is there a kind of do they think there's a kind of um, uh, seagoing mammalian uh, sort of uh, telepathy or something? I mean, that they, you, you know, the. on the other hand, you know what it sounds like. It sounds like a, a whale version of, here we go again, quantum mechanics. You know, exactly. in, I, in exactly. the two, you know, the two elements, two, two molecules, two atoms can be Millions of miles of, yeah, That's connected. the whole uh,
1: quantum thing That we're always yeah. getting at yeah, Is yeah. this unbelievable connectivity of, the, of all created things in the universe Of course that's where we're going yeah. So the thing is First of all I, I hope our, li- our listeners Viewers <laughs> Hopefully were able to Hear from that recording And again Anybody can go to, you to YouTube And look up Humpback whale sounds It sounds very plaintive Sometimes haunting uh, And very very human But where am I going with this? I'm going back to something that we've discussed upon occasion, which is so riveting, and that is this obscure, rather th- obscure and unusual work called Perikshira. Mm-hmm. Perikshira, called the Chapter of Song, is a is a work of. Um, it's unknown exactly when it's first. <laughs> kind of was revealed, but it's a very esoteric kind of what you'd call, I guess, a Kabbalistic text. Oh, it's, it's actually it's, liturgy.
0: Yeah, it's lovely. I have a, a, a very dear friend, uh, as a gift, gave me a copy of the yes. Shira. It's wonderful. Now,
1: they, now they've made beautiful editions that anyone can find online. They've made uh, small pocket editions. They've made coffee table versions with beautiful pictures. But what it's all about, basically, is... It's six chapters, and it's very, very esoteric rabbinic literature, drawing from song, from, from themes, and from verses, mostly from Psalms, and some from other biblical sources, and some just from rabbinic literature. But what it is is that it's this. Uh, speaking of quantum and something being very holistic, it is this iconography of all creatures singing to Hashem. Amen. And that every single aspect of creation from the inanimate, beginning with the earth and the grass and the air and water, all through the animal kingdom and man as well, sings its own song to Hashem as part of um, being alive. You know, like, for example, it, it starts with the heavens, and the heavens have a verse, in the verse is Psalms 19.2, because the verse states, The heavens speak of the glory of God, and of his handiwork the skies tell. So th- as it's along those lines, and it's basically this um, imagery of every aspect of creation, basically acknowledging God and thanking God. The beautiful thing about it that we've discussed in the past is it's actually included in the Siddur of Israel in finer Siddur, not in every... Prayer book, but in the bigger ones that are inclusive of like all the different liturgy, the thing is that it's it is um, a whole first of us a whole course of study, but second of all, because of the centrality of man and the whole concept of the the um, man being the center of all of creation, man being the the, the conductor over the orchestra of, con- of creation who brings everything together. So there are pious people who. Usually, who actually recite that every day before they begin their morning prayers because the concept in in Jewish mystical thought and this is the this is the zinger really i mean this is an unbelievable thought it's just showing how important man is in to the torah mindset the the idea is that none of these creatures can sing their song until man lowly man says this prayer, and then he kind of like ignites the key in the ignition, because he is the maestro. The conductor. And he's inclusive of it. You know what it is exactly? It's the whole thing that we see in the Genesis narrative, that man gave names to all the animals. right. Which is actually the name of a Bob Dylan song. And the whole idea being that the Hashem could have named them. And the angels could have named them, but God waited. And he brought all the animals to Adam, and what does the verse say there? That whatever man called them, that was their name.
0: Yeah. Because well, because
1: man has this unbelievable insight into yeah. their very essence.
0: I was going to say, but the the other implication is that that each uh, creature uh, singing, <clears throat> excuse me, its own song shows that all of creation, literally, with with man. As, as, it's, as he's called, uh, you know, in the, in the Torah, the, where he, he is placed in, in the order of creation is that every living thing has a place in this concert, that every living thing has, uh, is to work in concert. And, but it also points to how we have such a responsibility in that we can, in, in a way, sing off-key, sing a, a wrong note, Uh, misconduct if you will and it it really does give you a sense of the fact that Israel being I the the nation of Israel being the model for humanity's relationship with God shows you that that uh, basically uh, the thing that always and we're gonna see this in the in the Torah Parsha this week is that uh, everything in 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 the nation of Israel physically and spiritually has to everything everyone does impacts the rest of the nation and the I world mean, in the in the world beginning with Israel because you're 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 a nation who is not just a nation you're a nation who is a true community, and and that is that is so that theme to me don't you think runs through the whole parsha this absolutely. week uh, I absolutely
1: mean, absolutely yeah and the thing about this chapter of song is that. It, it, if you know, it's not just like some beautiful poetic kind of um, concept, you know. But it is again an example of this, l- like the staggering responsibility
0: mm-hmm. of a
1: person in the hierarchy of creation. But anyway, so where am I going? Because again, uh, th- and this to me <laughs> again, this is news. <laughs> this is news that fits print. And, and news that's fit to talk about this discovery of these humpback whales, because Hashem is the one that's moving and bringing things together and bringing knowledge to a place where if a person will be open and sensitive and, and want to apply these things to our lives, because the, because the whole world is searching for Hashem's presence. And look, we're in the month of Elul. The king is in the field. We're coming to the time of the renewal of all creation. This is the whole thing. But where am I going with this specifically? So you know that there is actually a. This <laughs> is fine, this to be so exciting. There is actually a, an entry for whales in the in the chapter of song.
0: Oh Amen. Wow. Because
1: there is a verse here. So first, first of all, I played that the humpback whale music into my mic here. I hope our listeners uh, at home uh, heard it. I don't know if it if it um, came through or not. If, if not, I invite everyone to go onto YouTube and find Humpback Whale songs, but listen to this. There's an entry here in the chapter of the song for the Leviathan. Ah, of course. And the Leviathan, yeah. now, okay, so wait, so the Leviathan is considered to be, if you look it up, like you'll find a definition like it's a mythical beast or a sea monster, but Leviathan in modern Hebrew is a whale. Right, right. So this is something so beautiful, Jim, of all the verses, in, of all the creatures, great and small, that are named here in the chapter of song, what is the verse of the Leviathan that according to this esoteric work, the Leviathan, the whale says every day? It is, uh, Psalms 136, verse 1, which is, um, Give thanks to Hashem because He is good because His mercy endures forever. <laughs> okay, that most beautiful verse: Give thanks to Hashem for He is good for His mercy endures forever. I believe it's Psalms 136.1, is the is according to the sages that is the statement made by the Leviathan. The Leviathan, of course, in Chazal you remember is this large sea, sea monster or or fish or whale that was. Comes from the very beginning of creation that Hashem is saving to make a banquet right. for the righteous in the in the future coming world, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. But again, in in modern Hebrew, it's the will, and that's the song of the will. So uh, I think the whole thing is so amazing because it is uh, this this whole idea of the whole world, like you say, singing in unison, every deal, every every detail of creation singing its song to Hashem, all forming some sort of tremendous... uh, Symphony. Symphony, exactly. And it is like some sort of prophetic scenario that that we find emphasized by the prophets of Israel that in the future, at the time of the ultimate redemption, the whole world is going to sing together. Again, I know you and I always date ourselves. We talk about our playlist, but you remember the Coca-Cola commercial with the new Seekers? <laughs> right? I'd like to you teach know. the world to sing. Anybody yeah. that's, I guess, less than our age is, but you can look it up. Again, all the youngsters out there that that mm-hmm. still have their own teeth and everything like that, their own hair, they can look it up. But y- but you and I remember the new Seekers are all standing on that hillside. <laughs> right? I'd like to teach the world to sing, and then it was, I think, it was expropriated by Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. but. The truth is that kind of imagery of the whole world, like holding hands and singing, that's actually what the prophets describe.
0: Well, and, and the, the next verse in, in the song that a lot of people forget: "I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony," right. which, which is really what we're talking about. You know, the, this process of bringing everybody together. You know, uh, my my teacher, blessed memory the late Wendell Jones, used to talk about what happened in the garden. And he, he said that the Hebrew phrase, I, I can't remember which, which phrase it is in the Torah describing when everything went wrong. And, and I can't remember the Hebrew word. I wish I thought of it before. But anyway, he said, and, and he says, and everything's been off key since then. And I'm trying to remember the word that's invoked there in the narrative of, of Gan Eden when they, for, you know, partake of the... Um, is is the word off or anyway I don't know exactly
1: which which verse you're referring yeah. to? I'll have
0: to I'll have to we'll talk about that when we get into Bray sheet again. We'll 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 talk about what was off key. But 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 well, you know, Joni
1: says we have to get ourselves back to the we garden. We have to
0: get we gotta get ourselves back to the garden. Amen. Yes. Yeah. so
1: so he, so here's the thing. This scenario of um, the whole world singing and it's kind of intimated by the chapter of song and by the by the song of every creature singing. But, you know, you get to Psalms 96, and it just doesn't get any clearer or better than this, where Psalms 96 states, begins by saying, sing to Hashem a new song. Sing to Hashem the whole world. <laughs> and it's like, that's it, exactly. That's yeah. And that is like the real subject that I wanted to get to today, which is, you know, I think that we need to begin start to start talking about the concept of teshuva, repentance, because y- Rosh Hashanah is a- approaching. Yom Kippur is approaching. The month of Elul is really all about preparing ourselves, getting uh, getting ourselves into the pattern of repentance. And I think it's a very misunderstood concept. But before we get to that, th- so this verse, you know, like sing to Hashem a new song, sing to Hashem the whole world, and that means everything and every person participating in that song, but there's a, there is a very beautiful idea because there are different types of songs and one of Rabbi Nachman Breslov's huge ideas is the 10 types of song which he distilled into this power very powerful prayer, this Tikkun HaKlali, the general remedy, the whole idea of, the, of 10 different types of song that reverberate in the universe that kind of bounce off the 10 statements from which with through which Hashem created the world that again were channeled through the, the 10 commandments at at sinai and every and and all creation is constantly singing as it were these 10 songs and the man's soul picks up on that and and wants to return to hashem so so the the torah speaks about two different types of song because you know that in hebrew everything is either masculine or feminine Mm -hmm. right it's one of the most important things about the hebrew language and again one of the things that we go into in great detail in in our zoom classes is Studying in Hebrew, studying the words of, of Torah in Hebrew and seeing tremendous worlds open up before us. You, ca- you just don't get it from a translation because there's so much wisdom, divine wisdom in, in every letter. So there's different types of song in the Torah. And most times it's in the feminine, which is Shira, which is Shiro, also okay. a popular girl's name, right? I have a granddaughter named Shira. Shira is the feminine for song. And then Sheer is the masculine.
0: Yeah.
1: And when the Torah speaks in the prophecies about the future song that's going to be sung at the time of the redemption, it's in the masculine. Shir chadash, A new song. song. A yeah. and song. And, th- and it's compared, you know, the, the ultimate redemption and the tremendous revelation of, of, of the unity of all things in Hashem's presence is compared to like childbirth, so the sages ask this incredible question, right? Why is it in the masculine? Because if that future song is like the ultimate, you know, birth of a new consciousness and a unity of the whole world, that's the Shir Khadash, the new song. Why isn't it Shira Khadasha? Why isn't it in the feminine? Because after all, it's a question of childbirth. And the sages answer that the future song that's gonna be sung which is going to be emanating with with this tremendous power you know from the redemption itself is going to be such an unbelievable miracle that it's going to be the level as it were of a male giving birth in well, other words something totally unheard of unprecedented impossible not giving any credence to all the different things that are going on today that people are trying to are trying to do. I'm saying the fact is, as far as Torah is concerned, there's no such thing as a male giving birth. That's not what it's supposed to be, right? But yet, yeah. the future song is is compared to a male giving birth because the miracle is going to be outshine anything that we've ever seen. That's the concept of that last song, the song that's going to be sung by the whole world
0: amen yeah well and we're the the even the, the lab but uh, to uh, connect it with with our studies uh, reminding our list, listeners and viewers etc that uh devarim compares the torah calls the torah a song i think when we get into hazenu it's right. going to moshe be a says, song right moshe says write for yourselves it, this song this right. is a song yeah and i i think the other the reason that's so important is because a song is the best way to remember anything. I mean, the song itself acts as a a, a mnemonic, if you will. I mean, how many people still, if you ask them to uh, recite their ABCs, they think of it in the form of a song, don't they? Mm -hmm. I mean, I I do, you know.
1: It's like a link to earliest childhood memories also. Yeah. It's, It's a very pure kind of, listen, you and I have discussed this, it's a type of prophecy. It really is, and you know, you know that the prophets of Israel were only able to bring. You know, last week we spent the whole broadcast really talking about prophecy, and, and a very big prerequisite for for getting divine inspiration is a certain level of consciousness that's brought about by music.
0: Yeah, and because because music, first of all, you cannot be depressed and and sing. A, a, a song a, a, and the other thing is is that i don't attain, know about that james taylor is pretty des- pretty depressing <laughs> well i'm talking about singing for hashem but the what i was <laughs> the point i was trying to make is that uh, i don't know if we even talked about this last week but one of the uh, dynamics uh, that is that has to be in place to achieve prophecy is you have to, you have to be joyful yes uh, someone someone who is is depressed cannot access the prophetical realm and and Absolutely. uh yeah
1: okay i've given the whales their due i think i've done my i think i've done my part today to save the whales i've given them a lot of attention and uh, right. i'm not leaving i'm not leaving them i'm just moving forward but right. i'm still with them i'm still with their song but this week's torah portion is so unique because frankly it has more Mitzvot than any other parsha in the whole Torah. That's right. What,
0: 74, I think? 74 altogether.
1: Uh, 28 positive and and 46 negative. And the the spectrum, the variety is so intense. You know, uh, so many different types of mitzvot uh, relating to so many different circumstances. And some of them are like easy to understand, you know. Mm -hmm. And some of them are much more exotic because you have things like uh, inheritance rights and, wi- and, uh, and um, burial and dignity of the dead and returning a lost object. And, uh, but then you have things that are very, very enigmatic like sending away the mother bird and um, the various forbidden mixtures. And then in general, I mean, the whole Parsha opens with the beautiful captive woman which is just so intense and yeah. has so many different levels of meaning. And of course, again, it, it's always read in the month of Elul, and there's a tremendous amount of significance to the spiritual aspect of many of these um, many of these commandments. And uh, I want to leave something for for our video I- as far as the symbolic level of what of why we're reading about such a collection of mitzvot. and the question of whether or not they are, you know, disparate from each other, or if they are somehow Connected on some level. I mean, on the the most basic level, I will I will say this and that is that in last week's Torah portion, it's like you know there's a certain order here because Moshe was setting up a a society for the children of Israel about to come into the land, and so there were national institutions that were outlined previously. You know, like the Sanhedrin and the sovereignty, the kingship, and and it was much more kind of like the setting up the nation as a whole. And now it makes sense for for us to see that their commandments are applicable to every individual in all sorts of circumstances. Because the bottom line is that, as, as we've said many times, Torah is of this world. It's given over to us in this world. And it's all about taking responsibility. And that's one of the main, um, you know, take-homes of the temple. Which is so central in in Torah thought is that there is a difference between human beings and the rest of creation, and basically, uh, Torah is a is um, a a um, a collection of advice that Hashem is giving us because He can't force us because we have free <laughs> free will, right? And no. the advice is f- is for us to avoid becoming. Selfish for, uh, for us to avoid becoming uh, lust-driven, and for us to attempt to to reveal the godliness in everything, and that's really what the mitzvot are all about for every person, and yeah. it is every person, whether Jew or non-Jew, because because everything is based not on some sort of just armchair philosophy, but on a covenant. It's very action-oriented. Everything is very action-oriented.
0: Yeah, I think when you read KTC uh, the the for the people who are uninitiated in Torah study, if you just read it through, it's startling in its uh, separateness. It, it seems to, it almost seems to be a random collection of, of, of mitzvot that have nothing to do with each other, yet it is just the opposite in that if you pay attention from start to finish, you'll see that, that the the diversity of the nature of each of these mitzvot is actually proof of the unity of the Torah. Because there, is, there are common uh, foundational threads that run through the whole Torah Parsha. And if you remember that when you read it, I think people will see the connections and see these themes and, and I, maybe we'll, they'll be more aware of it by the time of the end of our, pro, our, our uh, podcast.
1: One thing that that we can see, you know, immediately is that, you know, the circumstances and the situations in which these commandments are applied all all vary, but they all pertain to the behavior of the individual, yeah, within the larger framework of of um, of the society of the nation. But again, yeah. it is much deeper than that, and like everything else, you know, it's a lifetime of study. It's not not in one podcast because they're because the whole idea of the captive woman, for example, wh- wh- which is so out there in terms of the question as to whether, is, is the Torah simply, um, you know, uh, licensing uh, uh, lust in the heat of battle, or is it something much, much deeper? You know, the whole idea that the soldier who is risking his life, who is um, basically fighting Hashem's battle because of this tremendous level of dedication that he is on, and he is filled with a certain kind of divine spark that enables him to see into something very, very deeply. And the grammatical nuances of the verse describing his desire and describing what he sees in this woman is basically, again, who are these women? They are basically weaponized weaponized by their own nation in order to seduce and lead astray the soldiers in order to, d- to diminish their merit in God's eyes because they know the whole thing. Remember with Bilam and Balak, they know, they know how important chastity is to the God of Israel. But the idea is that, this, that on the deeper level of what the captive woman is all about, according to the holy Orachayim, the the insight is that he sees a spark in this woman mm-hmm. of holiness that's kind of like trapped in her. And he is being being given the opportunity to release that and to and to bring her to a, a level of elevation, right?
0: Yeah. The, so
1: what, what? Yeah.
0: I was just so saying the the idea being that that often the sages point out that often the captive woman is uh, someone who's actually a potential convert. There there is a there is a a Jewish soul in that woman, and and God has has presented her with an opportunity. Uh, that, that she never would have in her normal uh, routine of, of daily activity until her nation comes into contact with God's holy nation that, that uh, this, because, and the reason I say that, and this sounds, if you read it, it's so astounding because you think, how can this be helpful to a woman? But the point is, is that, that the, when you read this and the same parsha that says, when you want to partake of the eggs of a bird, shoo away the mother, shew her away. It's for the mother's protection. It's it's showing mercy on the woman, and this is again we mentioned this a few moments ago. This is the, one of the themes that runs through this parsha, is that it it tells us that God is just, but God is also very merciful. And those aspects actually emerge in in this particular part of the parsha that that you're talking about the, the captive woman it at first blush it doesn't seem that way
1: again it, uh, for the parsha which is so intense of 74 mitzot so to start with this, and on again on the symbolic level the, the 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 parsha opens with the with the verse when you go out to war
0: yeah and it which,
1: ends with the with the war against amalek, amalek. so it's a, it's 70 Two other mitzvah are sandwiched in between these themes of war, and again, the main war that we're confronting in this month of Elul is with ourselves, with mm-hmm. our own yetzer, with our own evil yeah. inclination. Overcoming that. The thing and, about and this captive woman.
0: Yeah, I was to say, on a technical point, it's important to remember that these, because it says, when you go out to war, these were not the. These are wars. These are. This is a different battle. In this, this, this mitzvah does not. Uh, apply to the mitzvah of coming in and reclaiming the land, right. because of that key phrase. When you go out, it, it is those battles that where Israel has to leave the borders and, and take on an enemy and, in defense of themselves, right?
1: But here is the thing that I that I w- w- you know started to to lead up to. You know, this woman is a uh, militarized sex slave. Mm-hmm. Who is she a slave to? She's a slave to the industrial military complex of her own pagan nation yeah. that is basically enlisting her to um, um, abandon herself to try and trip up the children of Israel. So then you have this soldier who's basically a tzaddik. Excuse me. He really is. He, you know, He's a righteous individual. who's fighting for Hashem's honor. And all of a sudden, he feels this attraction to this woman. So what does the Torah say? He takes her home. And she makes herself disgusting. She it takes off the seductive garment that she was wearing, and she puts on something else, and she grows her nails long, and she, and she weeps for her parents for 30 days. Yeah. And she basically allows herself to, to go, uh, to revert to, to, to who she is, a woman, right? And the, basically the, the Torah's instructions to the soldier is that he has to wait a month. If he feels the same way about her after this month when she no longer is this temptress, right? She's no longer this, uh, you know, playing this seductive role. Or she has to cut her nails. Right. She she has to unbeautify herself. Exactly. So if he feels the same way about her after that month, that shows that it was never the physical desire that was motivating him in the first place. In other words, Mm -hmm. it wasn't that image it wasn't in the heat of battle that lust it wasn't a sexual drive it was something much deeper that he saw inside of her that spark of her special soul if right. he do, if he's no longer attracted to her then then uh, he lets her go because that shows that that's all it was yeah so it's a, it's a it's a, a whole deeper insight into into what's going on and that's And I like the
0: f- I like the other connection that we see in this parsha between marriage and uh, going off to war. And I, th- I, for some reason this mitzvah always struck me as being very romantic. And I think it shows you uh, uh, something that I don't think any other nation, uh, even America, which is supposed to be, you know, always be a shining example of what, how an army should conduct itself and its laws. And that is the commandment. I love this commandment that, that a, a newlywed man cannot be sent to war and right. he for a year so that the first and I was looking for the verse to read it because my it's,
1: newlywed son was complaining about that you know? <laughs> <laughs> because Why? you know getting getting called up in the first year is against the torah
0: yeah. Yeah it is. Oh, okay. I, I, I see what you mean. Now I thought you meant about about the mitzvah. No, no, no. I mean I mean that it's it sh-
1: it should be in practice by this.
0: Day no, it should be. It's marvelous because because and, and I for years I didn't know this was in the Torah. And and I thought and in fact there's another mitzvah in the Torah that shows you how ahead of the times uh, the nation of Israel was even three thousand years ago about about you know protecting the trees in battle and about how you conduct your sanitary uh, aspects of of war. But this one about a, a newlywed has to stay home for a for a year, and I don't have the phrase in front of me. But it and Glad and ha- his wife. Oh yes, exactly. Yeah. So and and how many and and how many. Uh, Uh, romances how many marriages uh, in every war have we seen have fallen apart because a couple got married very quickly you know I want to marry you before you you go off to war and then what happens later you know he's away too long and you know life gets in the way and and the marriage or the relationship falls apart but the Torah enjoins you to keep that young man and that woman together for a year before they're they're pulled apart by, by right. war. I think it's wonderful.
1: Yeah, I mean. So the thing is, we have a, f- a few weeks only in this countdown to, to the new year, which is a whole new reality. And um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the concept of teshuva, which is defined as repentance. I think repentance is an archaic, clunky kind of word. It's very, very, I don't know... Uh, it's evocative of a certain kind of um, headspace and imagery which I, I want to be liberated from completely for our talk because the thing is, in order to talk about what it really means to return to Hashem, which I think is completely misunderstood by m- by most people, and which the season calls for, this month of Elul, is really all about like refocusing and returning to Hashem. In order to do that, first we have to really define sin, and that is an explosive kind of topic because people have such locked in ideas about sin, which, which honestly, they're so destructive, people's ideas, and they're so uh, not, not what Torah teaches, you know? Because there's a, there's a whole idea about, about everything being sinful a lot of people have that idea that we're born in sin, 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 sin. Everything is about sin, and that's why we need the holy temple because we need to bring the sin offering because we're sin, 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 and you can't do anything right, and nobody can do anything right, and that is absolutely not what what Torah teaches. So, so I'd like to get into this. It's probably going to take us more than more than today, but you know, it is very, very important and very, very now and very, very misunderstood. And again, we talked about the new seeker standing on the hilltop. I'd like to take the wor- teach the world the same. We talked about the new song, the masculine song. We talked about the whales. The thing is, this, this need for returning is a global thing, encompassing not only every individual but every nation. And that is the prophetic scenario, ultimately, that the whole world returns to Hashem. And the question really is, how is that going to happen at what At what? price, really, and how will we see the fulfillment of that verse that I mentioned earlier, Psalms 96, of sing to, the, to, sing to Hashem a new song, sing to Hashem the whole world. So, you know that if you want to, to distill, like, the goal of life, according to Torah, I know that there are many ways of doing this. You can stand on one foot and you can say, you know, love your neighbors yourself. There's a lot of ways that you can do this, but one of the most practical Concise, definitive explanations of what our goal is as human beings is Proverbs three six, which basically says, "In all your ways know him." And I think that is a very, very comprehensive idea because the the real goal of our lives, and this is my, this is my um, intrinsically imperative. Um, introduction to the to our topic of repentance because what what are we doing in the world in the first place right what do i what do I have to return from what did I do wrong Where am I off right so what so first of all what's the goal the goal is when in telling us like know him in all your ways, the idea is basically that we need to be aware of his presence all the time and to connect with it and to bring that knowledge to the surface to to everybody and to and as you know, and as you're fond of speaking about Jim, what that really boils down to as the definitive criteria of the human condition
0: is free choice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. Yeah. In fact, we choose Hashem, if Hashem was revealed to us without our uh, engaging him, if he you know, the reason that Hashem is concealed is that n- nobody would sin. Because we would always be aware of his presence, and so the choice to us is to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to embrace that idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna approach reality, because sin. An, another thing about sin, I, I believe the sages actually liken it to a, a form of temporary insanity. And and the thing is, is that it, it's it's a mental aberration because, and part of that aberration, part of the aspect of it. We forget that Hashem is ever present in our lives. And so the one aspect of the free will is to acknowledge that continually. I mean, how many of us do that? How many of us do that? And that's, that's of course, part of the, the job description of Israel is to make the world aware that Hashem is ever present. And that's why we shouldn't sin. Because w- why would we, if, if we kept primarily in our head all the time, Hashem is, is seeing me do this thing. How can I do it?
1: You just touched upon every single point that I wanted to make. We can go home now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, we, you just touched upon every single point so beautifully and so deftly and amazing. Because the problem is, Hashem's concealment in this world, but mm-hmm. that is deliberate because He wants Amen. us to look for Him. So therein is the rub, because He is not making it easier for us. But so He says, "In all your ways know Him." But the thing is that that the the you know the uh, essence of of our humanity is choosing between right and wrong in everything, all the time, and that's of, of such. Paramount importance because everything, and Torah says it so many times that we're going to learn soon in Parshat Nitzavim In Deuteronomy chapter 30. See, I have placed before you today the life and the good, the death and the evil, that which I command you today to love Hashem. And again, it's like Hashem doesn't It uh, doesn't control it. It's like he urges us to choose to choose good, but it's it's up to us But when but this is like again, like if I if I could teach the world to sing. If I could distill the whole thing in a couple of sentences, the idea is this. Torah is a celebration of our humanity, because we're only human. And when we do choose good, we basically validate our existence. Mm -hmm. Because there's this whole Midrashic idea that when Hashem came to create the world, there was this group of angels that said, don't do it. It's not a good idea. You'll just be disappointed. Because man is, and he threw them out. They're the nephilim, because they were so negative, you know. Mm. <laughs> he threw them out, because they're like, don't do it. Man is only going to be a disappointment. It's not a good idea. But there's still like an echo in creation, because they did that. So everything that we do is basically about proving that Hashem was right in having faith in us, you know. And, 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 and we sanctify God by living very human lives, which is the whole beauty of Torah, why it wasn't kept in heaven for the angels, why it was given. It's very earthy, right? Look at the mitzvah in this in this part you have to make yeah. a, a fence on your roof so nobody will fall off. Everything is very, very much about the human situation, but when we do that and we're able to translate the divine light into our everyday human life, that is a celebration of our humanity, and that's basically... That's basically who we are. And, and, and again, again, getting back to Parakshira and man's position as being the maestro of all of creation, you know, on, on Friday of the six days of creation, the very last thing that was created was man. Yeah, man. And you could look at that in, in, a, in a very um, negative way, like, oh, <laughs> I almost forgot. There's one more thing. Oh, wh- what is it they I wanted to do again? What was that? Oh, that Shlemiel. That, uh, right yeah. you could think oh it was almost like an afterthought or you could realize what Hazar teaches us is that is that hashem brought man into a perfect world and it's very much likened to like a, a bridegroom carrying his bride over the threshold into their new home where, where he's like see look what i prepared for you look how beautiful everything is and no. so he is totally at the center of everything
0: and and uh, as to continue in that that thought the fact that uh, hashem saved all right, here we go. It sounds like chutzpah, but he saves the best for last when it, when everything is set in place. So here comes man being created. But then who was created after Adam is Ahava, Eve. So she is even more So she's really in charge, you're saying. She's, yeah, well, I mean, she's the, you know, I, I always su- surprise some of my non-Jewish friends when I, I ask them. I say, you know. Uh, you know, a Jewish male is is commanded to uh, to pray at least three times a day, and I say, how many times does a does the woman have to pray? And they always guess wrong. They go, what one, two, five, fifteen, or, or they'll say, well, if it's a woman, she probably has to do it twice as much. And yet, the truth is, a, a woman is not com- commanded to pray at all, because because well, she well, is her
1: prayer is her prayer, Her her ideal time of prayer would be as far as the commandment is concerned would be when it's naturally
0: yeah ebbing from yeah. her heart yeah
1: or Shabbat but the but the answer is yeah that her whole life is a prayer amen every single moment is a prayer yeah like someone said there's no one closer to God than a mother because she's constantly crying out to God in everything
0: yeah and her soul is is elevated a little more because she is she is more I mean, this is when we get into the the commandments about the birth. Uh, we, we talk about this often uh, be, because it's one of the most misunderstood concepts in the Torah that when a woman gives birth to a to a child, she is, quote, impure for seven days. And impure being the wrong word. Uh, the word in Hebrew actually means... She's, uh, she's she is basically knocked off balance. Is off what it balance. Is. And she's, you're right. She's out of balance. She's missing. She's lost a life essence in her. And so she she to be restored, it takes seven days for a male, but it takes twice as long for that holiness to be restored when she gives birth to a female. And I think it's it's uh, and these are the things that I think, again, reinforce the idea that the Torah has every part of Torah has a a practical, physical, everyday reality uh, component. And then when when these mitzvot are carried out, the simple act of building a, a parapet, a, a, a barrier around your porch, uh, doing that actually is uh, uh, holiness. People wouldn't think of that, but it's actually fulfilling holiness.
1: That's really what the mitzvot accomplished. They bring this divine light into the world in every, in every area. Amen. So you said something earlier that was also like so exactly what I wanted to say, because again, in order for us to grapple with the with the misconceptions about teshuva, again, I don't even like to de- use the word repentance just because it has such negative associations. Like, I did something terrible and now I'm begging God to forgive me. The first thing that we really have to do is define sin mm-hmm. in the Torah mindset. And the, as you said, and it's, it's still a bit avant-garde because not everybody understands it and not everybody agrees, but the honest truth is that sin is temporary insanity. Mm-hmm. Now the non-Jewish conception that, that I'm familiar with, that, that people have told me that they're hung up about, Right, a, lo- a lot of people have told me that they're hung up because they were taught that sin is basically that everyone is totally evil. Yeah. And everything is bad. And we're all bad, born in sin, only sin, everything is sin. And, and the truth is, and this is the deepest thing in the world, that what many people would define as sin is really basically just being a human being. Yeah. Now I'm not obviously I'm not talking about deliberate wanton evil, which unfortunately people can do and people do become. But I'm talking about just r- people who make mistakes. I'm talking about people who want to be the best that they can be. Again, I'm not talking about the monsters amongst uh, amongst us, and there are quite a few. There are people that definitely decide that they're going to go in the direction of of um, uh, selfishness, which leads to a total implosion of the divine image, and they become and they become evil. But I'm not talking about them at the moment. I'm talking about most people using most reasonable, rational, middle-ground people using the term sin about themselves, which gives them so much guilt and so much anxiety and lack of confidence, whereas actually everything is all mixed up in this world. In fact, when when Hashem told Adam in the Genesis narrative, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat bread, right? According yeah. to the deepest insights of our mystic sages, the idea of by the sweat of your brow just refers to the difficulty of the fact that everything in this world is mixed up between good and evil. There's, in other words, there's practically nothing that is completely good and practically nothing that is completely evil. There is a lot of mixture that has to be sifted through. And then you see something like Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20 says, there's no such thing as a tzaddik, which means a righteous person, who does only good and doesn't sin. Yeah. That is mind-blowing for many people who are coming from a non-Jewish perspective because that verse is basically saying he is called righteous, he's righteous, right? And he does a lot of good, but he also sins. Because a lot of people have this idea that if a person is righteous, they never sin. But no, what Ecclesiastes is saying is that there's no such thing as a righteous person who does only good and doesn't sin, meaning that even a person who is righteous is good in his essence and lives a good life can occasionally sin because and that's where i go from here to to how i want to define sin which is and it's basically missing the mark and actually in hebrew that's what the word means it means that it diverts it's like you're shooting an arrow and it lost and, and and it it lost its path it went on it went off to the side And so it's like a kind of contorted creative energy, which Mm -hmm. is caused by losing focus of Hashem's presence at every moment because of the concealment. But again, it's all a setup for us to be able to choose between right and wrong. If a person was able to (coughs) have the cognizance at all times to realize that the whole universe is one unit, the whales are singing 9,000 miles apart, you and I are singing. <laughs> You're in the Ozarks, and I'm in Jerusalem. It all comes together through Parakshira. We're all in this together, and there's one God who is one, and everything is one, and the universe is functioning as one unit. That's quantum, but you forget because we are only humans, and we are being pulled down by our material nature. That's the struggle that we're mm-hmm. always locked in, that, that struggle bet- you know, between yeah. our godly soul and our material nature, and our whole life is about overcoming that, but occasionally we give in to this confusion and doubt, and and that's the time for us to look at ourselves and say, "Well, who am I really? What is it? This, not, this is not the real me that's doing this. I don't want. That's not what I want. I only want Hashem." But we get very, very confused, and into that space of that confusion, that's where a person can make a mistake. But it's right. uh, but it's not it's not like. It's just a whole different idea, and, and the reason that this is so important is because when we get into the specifics, according to all the teachings of of Torah and the prophets and the sages about how to repent and what the process is and what it really means, we'll see that it's not just a question of, oh, I did this very particular bad thing, and I want to come clean with that, and I want to do teshuva, I want to repent for that. That's obvious, that's for sure, but it's it's, it's much more comprehensive than that because It's really every day. The experience of repentance, which is something that we emphasize so much during this period of time, it's a constant life thing. It's every moment. It's every moment I want to grow closer to Hashem. I want to shed the person that I was even an an hour ago. So as opposed to this, you know, again, a certain conception of, like, I'm so bad, I'm so evil, I'm sin, I'm full of sin, I was born in sin. No, it's like I'm a person, and I'm always wanting to be the best that I can be and move closer to Hashem.
0: Yeah, I, some clarity I, I think is called for here and, and it, it will even help I think all of us understand would you say that on a very simplistic level that one understanding of what sin is it's just simply breaking one of the mitzvot one of the commandments right? Or, did, or do you think it or would you say it goes beyond that? Both. Okay.
1: Both, because on the on the simplest level, for sure, again, we and you're right. We do need some guidelines and some <coughs> some anchors to be able to have this conversation. So on the one point, on the one hand, obviously, if we go against Hashem's will, then that is certainly that could be classified as a sin. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying that because the the realm of humanity encompasses thoughts as well, and were and spoke and spoken word and deed. It, it also a, p- a person can repent of an entire lifestyle of a previous idea of a of a of a a personality flaw so obviously if i break one of hashem's mitzvot if i did one of the things which he told me not to do or i don't do one of the things which i had the opportunity to to do that is something that i i have to make amends for right? right and if i did something much much worse god forbid if i did something that was that was absolutely horrific well that's much more complicated to repent for, although you can, but there's also a, a tremendous amount of spiritual damage that is wrought by such a thing, and we ha- have to talk about that. There's a lot of detail here, yeah. but I'm saying in general, it's not just about breaking one aspect of the covenant. That's clear. It's, it's also, I just want to say, it's a forward movement all the time. This is why like, I, I, I'm very fond of quoting this famous teaching of, of Rabbi Nachman that even a perfect tzaddik... Has to repent every day, yeah. Which is a very very odd statement because the definition of a perfect tzaddik is someone who doesn't sin. Yeah. So, but okay. So we just finished saying that King Solomon in Ecclesiastes says that even uh, even a tzaddik has to, I- you know, can sin. But what is the sin, right? In other words, if if he's already known as being a perfect tzaddik, obviously his sin is not like a common person. He didn't do something base. Uh, you know something just totally you know off because that's not who he is. Yeah. So Rabbi Nachman says the most beautiful thing in the world. He says that 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 the teshuva of this person is about yesterday, about what he thought Hashem is yesterday, about yesterday about his previous conception of who God is. And that for him is a level of sin because see this is a, again the definition of sin is also very relative. But because he is a tzaddik he wakes up the next morning as a totally new person, and he realizes about yesterday. I ca- I can't believe it. I actually thought that I know who God
0: is because yeah. I was still limiting Him in my mind. Well, and we so, see that. And so what? Yeah, I was going to say we see that in the story of, of the Parsha of Noah. Uh, he's called perfect in his generation. Yet, if he if he's compared unfairly, by the way, if he's compared with uh, someone who is also called that that is referred to in that same uh reference that lived after the flood and was compared to for instance the patriarchs he would not measure up because he had a completely different set of challenges in his in his era in 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 the time that he lived right
1: but at the same time he he was a tzaddik and the torah calls Mm -hmm. him exactly yeah that yeah. that that you're that you're bringing up which is so important is that Every person's relationship with Hashem is, is just that. It's very personal. And he doesn't, this is what our sages teach us, he doesn't judge one person according to another person. He doesn't say, why weren't you like him?
0: Yeah, that reminds it's me the, the of, a, of an interesting comment I read. I think it was the Rambam. Uh, there was a, uh, a sort of disagreement between the Rambam of, uh, and the Ramban over the captive woman, and I believe that the Rambam said that if the captive woman did not uh, decide to uh, that that you know she was to go on her own way, that it was up to the man that took her captive to at least teach her the shevamits vote. Right. And 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 you know that, he, that because it's incumbent on Israel to teach the 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 non-Jewish nations the shevamits vote. And I thought that was another. Uh, very interesting aspect to, to that law but i i want to you know you brought up something i still it's kind of nagging at me that i want i think we should address and this this is this idea of you said you don't like the word repent because it has a kind of an old-fashioned context that it, it draws up in our memory what would you think would be a better word i'm thinking is reset a better word or i i personally
1: for, first of all I thank you for for Getting me back to that because you're right. I don't want there to be many, any misunderstandings. Uh, all I meant by that was that repent sounds like this King James version, you know, Old Testament kind of a word. You repent, you sinners, you know. Yeah. And I'm and 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 actually the word, by the way, again, the Hebrew is everything. It's if you take it apart, teshuvah is tashuv hey mm-hmm. So there's the word tashuv, which means put it back, return it. Yeah. And then the hay, the last hay is. Symbolic of basically Hashem's presence in this world. So the idea is, what, what again? What, what did you do? You drove a wedge between your, between yourself and between really the whole world. Again, it, ouch! It's scary how much responsibility a person has and how much one negative action affects the whole world. But the idea is, you drove a wedge between yourself, let's say, and Hashem's presence. Bring it back. Put it back. Tashuv he. Return the hey, Return Hashem's presence. Right. I like the word return. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this. Before we went uh, live today on mic, and I was thinking about return to sender. Now I know that Elvis's song, "Return to Sender," <laughs> address unknown, no such number, no such zone. I know that when it comes to the mail, right, the postal concept of return to sender with that mm-hmm. stamp has a negative com- connotation because because it's, it's usually like like the, um, the addressee didn't receive it or isn't there or doesn't want it, so return to sender. But no, on a deeper level, I really like the phrase, think about it, return to sender, because yeah. Hashem sent us here. He sent us here to this world. And so the whole idea is return, return to him, return to who you're supposed to be, return to who you are, right? Yeah. So rit- that's what I'm I'm going <laughs> to call
0: this right now. Hey, you know and that Elvis we, was actually yeah. Jewish.
1: It's it's yeah. a highly recommended book uh, that yeah. you can find is um, The Jewish World of Elvis Presley.
0: Yeah. He wore a Magad Magad we, and that, I digress. David. He he wore a mohawk navid yes. all the time. Yes, yeah. Apa- apparently
1: his, his father was very anti-semitic but his mother was actually Jewish.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she and she, um, she and the relationship they had was very much what you see in the in the Jewish home. Is that, you know, the mother, you know, the, the let's face it. I, I, some of us could have used a Jewish mom when we were growing up. <laughs> but um, the, the other thing I was going to address this idea is, uh, you know, I hope our audience doesn't tire of us invoking the, the quantum aspect of this. But could we also, in a real physical sense, could we also not liken sin to an a, a actual tear in, in, the, in the fabric of the in universe, the matrix. in the Absolutely. matrix, if you will.
1: Our listeners, you know, uh, God bless them, but uh, there's only so much I can do to make them happy. Mm-hmm. I mean, either they, uh, what, what is their choice, that either we talk about quantum or we talk about Elvis. I mean, yeah. we can't, this is who we are, you know, Jim, this <laughs> is who we are. But anyway, uh, that's perfect. It's a, it's a tear in the fabric of mm-hmm. reality. I love that. I love that. I think you just said something so brilliant that when a person goes against the Ratzon of Hashem it's going against the force of the universe which is functioning holistically in a quantum sense together towards bringing about the redemption and when someone goes against that because of their own lapse whether it was caused by self-centeredness or by just a lapse of consciousness, that is a tear in the fabric, exactly. yeah. (coughs) And it's repentance that repairs it. That's what's so beautiful. It's this return, when you return the hay. And it's about reconnecting and reestablishing the light of Hashem's presence in the world because we were out of focus. That's basically what, what, what it's all about now. And so we caused his presence to be hidden even more and yeah. again, it's not necessarily from a particular sin, as it might be just because of where I've been with my life and I want to get that back on track. And that's one of the unbelievable things that we're, that we will learn about repentance is that it applies yeah. equally to a sin or a set of uh, a set of negative actions or behavior patterns, and also to a whole lifestyle. Yeah. And the other thing that I want to say before we run out of time today, is, uh, because again, this is such a a beautiful and broad topic and so important every day, but especially for this time of year, it's important to know that according to Torah, this whole idea of teshuvah, returning to Hashem, is equally applicable to Jew and non-Jew. And it is like absolutely a guarantee of Torah that a fundamental teaching, that when a person, any person repents, there are certain stages of what repentance consists of, in order for it to be like the most perfect scenario, and we'll discuss that, what it, what it, what it has to contain in terms of the dynamic of, how of what's real about repentance and what's not just like window dressing or fooling yourself. I don't know when we'll get to that, but the idea is when a person repents, Torah guarantees his sins are forgiven. And that is, for example, in Deuteronomy 30, we read, if you return to Hashem your God and listen to his voice, God will accept your repentance and have compassion on you. And yeah. the best example of all that I think is amazing regarding the concept of how it applies equally to non-Jews, that we have a a testimony in the Bible is the story of Nineveh. Yes. Because Jonah, Jonah the prophet was sent to this very, very large Gentile population to basically warn them that they were gonna be destroyed. And it worked. They turned over a new leaf completely and they repented, and the decree was nullified. Right. And what's interesting c- to note about that is that these were non-Jews, and pardon me, but nobody died for their sins. There was no blood sacrifice. There was nothing except pure contrition, regret, remorse, and, and most importantly, the resolve not to go back to sinful ways, and they were forgiven. And that was uh, a perfect example of what the core experience of repentance is really all about.
0: Can we talk about one of the verses that is in this Parsha that addresses the aspect of sin that I think is, A, most misunderstood and is also confused with another reference to sin in the in the Torah. And it's one that is largely ignored today and we're ignoring it at our peril. and And then the... The woke community is actually um, they are forgetting even those that who who claim to be spiritual or religious in the woke community are completely forgetting this aspect of Torah about the sins of the fathers. And one of this is a pet peeve of mine is that in this in this Torah Parsha, it truly it specifically addresses the idea that you are only guilty of the sins that you commit if i commit a sin my sons are not punished for nor are they even responsible i each individual according to the torah in this parsha, is only responsible for the sins they commit and what do we have going on today they want they want they want us to pay reparations they want us to pay reparations for uh for, for slavery well according to, to Torah. I'm not responsible for my Ancestors who may have owned slaves which by the way they didn't because I came from very poor stock uh, People may have guessed that already. I don't know but the point <laughs> is is that is that no? Uh, it, it is against Torah to demand that I pay for something that my ancestors may have done and, and it is completely uh, It's immoral to ask people to do that Is it immoral to ask people to help other people? Not at all. Now, the other aspect of that that I want to bring up is there is another verse about the sins and their impact, and it says that the sins of the fathers, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the exact verse in front of me. The sins of the fathers, uh, and I'll I'll say this in, in contemporary terms, impact the children up to the fourth generation. That's that's pretty clear. I mean, I haven't misquoted it, right? So, what what is interesting is that is not the same. That is not the same um, misquote, and it doesn't have even have to do with the same thing. One addresses the guilt of sins and who is responsible for quote paying for those sins or repenting of those sins. Uh, the other is talking about the um, the impact of sins on everyone. And of course, that's that is also alluded to in this entire Torah Parsha in our responsibility, as we just said, about even the terror in the, in the universe and how it affects the community. And the fact being, for instance, if someone is an alcoholic, this latter verse I just quoted means that the effects of that alcoholism or sexual abuse or whatever, whatever misguided sin that the the parents were to commit, if they are of such an extreme nature, they will affect the children, the offspring up to the fourth generation. Does that mean that the, the, the children are going to follow in their footsteps? No, because, th- th- but it means that they are, uh, you may have to help me out here, Rabbi, it means that they are, um
1: not affected. led they're affected,
0: they are affected in affected. a very mm-hmm. real way that they it's mm-hmm. it's easier for them to fall prey to that sin uh for instance let's just use you know alcoholism or sexual abuse they we find that that daughters usually are very much affected by by that one and what's really interesting about this is that they i wish i had the article i just read it the other day and if people want want to read the article they can email me and I will send them the article, it's new evidence in the field of DNA research that further proves that when we when we have when we commit trauma against our family, it is literally embedded in our DNA. And they say and they say up to two generations. So it's it's proof of this scripture that when when we commit sins, it affects our children. Amazing. And and it gives it, it it presents them more of a challenge to either um uh, uh you know uh they to, to try not...
1: to undo the, the to undo those scars is a difficult right. thing.
0: Right, they they have to overcome that influence, that that, that, that impact, that influence. But they're saying up to two two generations, and and I predict. <laughs> um, I think that when they when they continue the study, I bet you'll find out it goes to four generations. But say but Rabbi, it says it's written in their DNA, and I forget that the, there is an actual name for this course of study. But the latest says that the effects of trauma in a family, uh, and we can definitely call sins trauma for goodness sakes, mm-hmm. um, carry up. They're, they're actually embedded in the DNA, and it's passed down to the children. By now, they've shown that it, it, it's encoded in the DNA up to two generations. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely that is
1: amazing. Important point, yeah. We sure have our homework um, cut out for us in terms of the, what we need to prepare ourselves for this month and this is a good start. I think we we set some uh, parameters down but I hope that we'll be able to continue in, in um, In our next broadcast a little bit more of the dynamics and the logistics of of what all this means like what there is a very specific process in jewish tradition for approaching hashem with things of that are heavy on our conscience and things that we need that we know that we need to make repairs for in that tear and how to go about it and it's extremely apropos to the season that we're in now because that's what this month really of elul is all about you know, we don't mention sin on Rosh Hashanah at all. It's a, another misconception that people have. Rosh Hashanah, the new year, is not, is not a time of repentance. It's only a time of basically coronating Hashem over us and recognizing His sovereignty. And after that's really sunk in on a deep level, we think about that over the, the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and then Yom Kippur is like the climax of really complete cleansing because mm-hmm. the, 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 the experience of true teshuva is so powerful that it really creates us as new people. So, God willing, we have a lot to discuss, and may this coming year bring us all blessing, true peace and happiness, good health, and may we be ready for the ultimate hilltop of everybody holding hands and singing. <laughs> the true, real, real redemption. Not a, not a made-for-TV commercial but what it will really look like. Amen. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.